You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. 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 To the Freedom Pact. Welcome back to the Freedom Pact podcast and today I am speaking to Brett Weinstein. Brett is an American biologist and evolutionary theorist who came to national attention during the 2017 Evergreen State College protests. He is also considered a member of the informal group of personalities known as the Intellectual Dark Web. For those of you seeking a deeper analysis of this episode of the podcast, head over to our friends at podcastnotes.org for a full write-up of the show notes. Before we dive into the episode, I just want to remind you guys of our free, healthy, wealthy, and wise newsletter in which we break down some of the world's greatest advice in the areas of health, wealth, and wisdom. So, without any further ado, let's jump right into the episode. Brett Weinstein, welcome to the Freedom Pack. Thanks for having me. So the first thing I wanted to ask you about, last night I was sat at home flicking through the TV and I saw the news was on and it got me thinking a lot about the news and how it is everywhere these days. You know, you turn on the TV, you've got news uh, fed down your throat, um, the radio, we all have these devices in our pockets that, you know, send us news all day long, whether we want it or not. And it got me thinking, for the people who are tuning into the news every day, what cautions must we take? What must we consider? And what questions could we ask ourselves when we're watching or consuming the news? I would say the first thing to realize is that for some reason, or possibly several different reasons, every channel that you might tune into, every official sanctioned major channel, has a pronounced bias of one kind or another. And it is necessary, in order to make sense of the world, it is necessary to correct for whatever bias it is that accompanies the channel you're tuned into. And that more or less requires that we tune into channels that we are not expected to. That is to say, we listen to things that are not targeted at us. And that greatly increases your ability to detect that fraction of what you're being told that isn't factual or is skewed. And I would say this is something, if you have traveled abroad uh, and spent a great deal of time out of your own country, and then you return home, suddenly all sorts of things that you wouldn't notice are jarring. And that culture shock is very good for uh, correcting your own internal biases. This is an analog of that. If we look at maybe freeform media at the moment, there seems to be this buzz, this craving, this desire for uh, these guys that are on the list of the intellectual dark web. What do you think that that says about us as a society, that we crave that? Or what does it tell us about what we've been starved of from mainstream media? We are drenched in come-ons from the moment we get up in the morning to the moment we go to bed at night. People are trying to sell us things, and we lose sight of just how abnormal that is. Certainly, this would not have been a feature of the existence of any hunter-gatherer, and even 
for most of uh, the time that humans have been farming, the idea of being marketed to would have been very foreign. So we we grow just used to it. And what that means is that people are starved for authenticity. And when people show up who are authentic, who are willing to tell you what they believe, even when it doesn't marshal in their interests, people respond to it very viscerally. And so I think that much of what fuels the desire to talk to people in the intellectual dark web and listen to what they have to say to each other, much of what fuels it is this hunger for anything that isn't bullshit. Absolutely. And I think that is a, a testament to, I mean, if you look at any of the major podcasts and, you know, there's no coincidence in the fact that these guys are, who are on the intellectual dark web, you know, yourself, Joe Rogan, Jordan Peterson, though, these are the guys that go viral then. Yeah, it, it makes sense. Um, and I must say, I also saw a version of this uh, as a professor in the classroom, which was not visible to the public. But I think even in in a college setting, people are used to hearing professors tell them what they are supposed to believe. And oftentimes those things are some sort of hybrid between reality and the perspective of some school of thought. And students get very good at humoring their professors, but what they learn to do is not take anything they're learning in the classroom very seriously. If you create a classroom environment where you are candid with students about what you actually believe, what the limits of your knowledge is uh, or are as you understand them, they respond um, very strongly as well. They gravitate to a professor who will uh, who will be candid with them. And you know, speaking of which, when we mentioned that uh, you were joining us on our newsletter, we actually received more questions sent in than we've ever had for a guest. Um, and I think that is a testament to how popular. Um, the desire is for this intellectual dark web and these conversations. And one of the um, most prominent uh, questions we were asked were, was surrounding social justice. And I've listened to guys recently like Douglas Murray talk about these ideas that maybe it's the fall in religion or the lack of a, a clear and defined career path um, that are leading people to almost, you know, substantiate meaning into their lives through the rise of, social justice and in the west for the most part i think we're we're rising on maslow's hierarchy so my question to you is where do you think this pursuit of social justice and political correctness stems and comes from well this is a difficult topic because the problem like so many of the things that we are asked to register our opinions on in the modern landscape social justice cuts both ways. Social justice is a highly desirable thing, but the movement that travels under that banner is a very destructive one. So the first thing to understand is that human beings are built to register unfairness, and they are not alone in this. We see evidence of this in other primates. And what it means is that even in a very prosperous era where our absolute well-being is growing, as you say, we are rising on Maslow's hierarchy, the way that the well-being is distributed is something that humans are more attuned to than their absolute level of well-being. And so we are seeing the ironic attack on civilization in the West by people focused on unfairness, both real and imagined, when 
it is foolish to attack the West because the West is creating so much well-being that we are all better off in absolute terms than an ancestor even a few hundred years ago. So that said, the unfairness is a problem. And in fact, the, uh, the increase in the Gini coefficient eventually will create a toppling of civilization if it's not addressed. So while it is the left that is traditionally focused on this issue uh, of fairness, it is the right's deafness to it, to it that has left us so vulnerable. So I would say it is necessary that some movement addresses the actual social unfairness that exists, and we've seen many such movements. The civil rights movement was wildly successful in this regard. But it is also important that that movement get the critique right, that the, the hollowness of the modern critique is so severe that many people are simply tuning it out and assuming that there is no unfairness problem, and that is a, a dire mistake. Hmm. I see online um, a lot of people are drawing uh, maybe some parallels between what has gone on in the world uh, this year and maybe your experiences personally at Evergreen. How aware were you back then of what was coming and is this something that you could have possibly predicted or foreseen? Well, uh, not only could I have predicted it, but I did predict it uh, rather directly. If people want to go and take a look at uh, my congressional testimony, for example, I warned the Congress that what they were seeing on college campuses was not about college campuses, that that was the first major battle, and it had very little to do with free speech, that free speech was a casualty of a movement that was about power. And the fact is, what I predicted, which is that this would spill out into civilization, that it would take over many institutions, that it would threaten our system of governance, all those things are now increasingly understood, and many people have pointed out just how accurate the prediction was. Now, to be fair, even I'm surprised at the speed with which this has happened. So speaking of predictions then, where do you personally see this social justice movement heading as it almost has a compound effect? Well, it really depends what happens in the upcoming election. If the Democrats prevail in the US, I expect them to attempt to manage the social justice movement cynically, and I expect them to lose control of it, which will be a disaster. If the Republicans win, then I expect that they will crack down on dissent and cause a backlash. But either way, it looks like our growing obsession with race is going to dominate the conversation, and that places not only the US, but the West in grave jeopardy. Mm. And speaking of the election, which outcome of the election do you think will uh, benefit or better give a better outcome for America in both the short term, so maybe uh, up to two years, and then the long term being maybe eight years? It's a very hard question to answer. I think they're both disastrous, and that's the reason that I initiated the Unity 2020 initiative, it does not seem that we have a winning play on uh, the mainstream menu. And so it's time for us to rise up and demand better choices. And I want to get into unity. But before we go there, if you were to make a prediction now on the election, how do you see it personally most likely panning out if you had to put your money on it? Well, assuming that the unity proposal doesn't take off in the next 
month, let's say, um, I'm I'm feeling fairly strongly that Trump will win and by a substantial margin. Now, will the Democrats accept that that has happened? Will they level accusations of cheating in the election? Um, very probably, unless the result is so strong that uh, those claims are uh, absolutely implausible. But it seems to me that the debates lie ahead, that Biden is in no condition to spend hours uh, with the need to answer difficult questions, and that a catastrophe is very likely for him in the debates. And it also strikes me that he has not leveled any sort of positive vision that somebody might vote for. His entire argument has been that he is not Trump, and that's not a strong position to go into an election. So that, in conjunction with the fact that a large fraction of the population is feeling jeopardized by the excesses of the protest movement that we see, I think means people will vote for the person who stands a much better chance of addressing that hazard. And uh, that seems to be Donald Trump. So we mentioned unity. Um, for a bit of context to the listeners who might not be aware, um, as a bit of a pretense, how have we arrived at this political duopoly? And why is it so detrimental to us as a society? Well, it really has to do with structural features of our system that first past the post voting results in the condensing of different factions into large incoherent alliances. Once those alliances exist, one effectively has to join them in order to be part of the conversation. And having joined them, one becomes complicit in protecting them from all external challenges. So the two major parties have invested mightily in structures that make any third-party offering dead on arrival, and this has allowed them to become very unpopular without being vulnerable. And you've offered a potential solution to the problem. So for people listening, if you were to give a sort of elevator pitch uh, for Unity 2020, how would that go? So I would say for those who are interested in something outside of the duopoly, um, breaking in and displacing uh, that power structure, we always face the same argument, which is whatever values you hold, if you advance a third party option, that holds those values, it will draw support away from the major party that is closer to those values and therefore increase the likelihood that the one farther from those values will win. Therefore, you mustn't engage in this behavior or you will elect the greater evil. Now, the solution to the greater evil paradox is to present something that does not bias in favor of one party or the other. That is to say something completely non-ideological. So the Unity 2020 proposal is that we draft two candidates, one from the left, one from the right, under the agreement that once elected, they will govern as a team by consensus. The person who will run at the top of the ticket is chosen by a coin flip, and after four years, their positions reverse. This can go on until one party has inhabited the office of president twice, and then they would be replaced by someone else who was eligible to hold that office. So this carries no ideology with it. There were three characteristics that I named up front that we wanted 
uh, candidates who we draft to have. They need to be courageous, capable, and patriotic. And beyond that, uh, anything goes. So we have now gone through a process in which people nominated those they thought were qualified according to those criteria. And then we held a vote to see who we wanted to draft. And the ticket that was most popular was Tulsi Gabbard and Dan Crenshaw. Do you think that, really think that as humans who have this tribalism and this us versus them mentality, so wired into our evolutionary psychology, do you think we are truly capable to operate and and really be, you know, a successful unity? 100%, because many of the greatest successes of human beings, in fact, I would argue all of them, depend on intense cooperation. Now, the fly in the ointment is that our ability to cooperate in the marvelous way that we do evolved in the context of competition. That is to say, we cooperate in order to compete. And so the question really is how far can unity go? You can scale it up as long as there's an enemy large enough to justify cooperation. And so uh, a, a nation can succeed until... Uh, it has no opposing force, at which point it will tend to faction. And the question is, can we stabilize these things so that we are not constantly in this process of succeeding and then having uh, our success robbed from us by this fissioning process? And do you envision a future for unity beyond 2020 then as a platform to advocate for anti-duopoly? Absolutely. In fact, I think it's Either way, absolutely necessary. The antidote to the partisan polarization that is threatening the United States is to recognize that what unites us exceeds what divides us by leaps and bounds, and to let that be our guiding principle. And I would say the movement, and it is a movement rather than a party, the movement functions beautifully from within. People are constantly exchanging ideas, and many of us aren't even aware of where the person on the other side of the conversation sits on the political spectrum. It has become irrelevant. So without unity, and you know, consider, uh, if we say that the duopoly continues, do you think it is possible we could ever see a leadership that actually addresses this idea and, and this issue of corruption uh, at the root? Yeah, I think that's, um, it is prevented by barring the gate. That is to say, the duopoly knows on which side its bread is buttered, and it jealously guards high office from anybody with an instinct to address the corruption. So whether it is Unity 2020 or some other proposal, the key is to speed someone past the corrupting influences that generally line the roadway to high office. So recently, my co-host spoke to Gad Saad, who describes in his book, The Parasitic Mind, that he believes the, the granddaddy of idea pathogens is postmodernism. What do you think is the most pathogenic idea then, and why? I think the most pathogenic idea is utopia, that the human mind is, for reasons that might be obvious, attracted to the notion of a perfect world. And the nature of humans as problem-solving creatures tends to set many people on the task of figuring out how 
one might generate that perfect world and what it would look like. But they always make the same mistakes. It happens that people who think in these terms do not understand the nature of a complex dynamic system. And instead of recognizing that the good things in life emerge in the context of trade-offs that cannot be evaded, they tend to focus on some objective, some problem that they think is the cause of all the others, and they seek to solve it. And it is this focus on values in isolation that is so destructive because one can prove very easily that in the context of a complex system, if you maximize any value, it doesn't matter how good a thing it is, but you maximize any value and you will cause all of the others to crash. Whereas if you were to accept 80% of that value, you might be able to get 80% of the others as well. So it is the balance and tension between competing values that one has to manage rather than to become obsessive over any single one. Now, the other major hazard is that utopians always believe they know what the blueprint of the system is that will maximize the one value on which they are focused. And this is always a mistake. The way to make a functional system is through prototyping. So we need to have that metaphor in mind. You can't, you can say the direction that a system you wish to build might lie in, but you cannot describe it perfectly up front because you won't discover what the flaws in your design are until you've implemented them. You have to build your way there or navigate your way there rather than blueprint it and set it in motion. So um, many of the greatest tragedies in human history are the result of utopians attempting to um, deploy or inflict their viewpoint on a population and then discovering in which way it comes apart. You are a professor in exile. What role do you think that academia plays in bad ideas originating? Academia, as we find it, is a tremendously corrupt place for lots of reasons, many of them quite mundane, like the way we fund universities tends to put a bias in the sciences in favor of experiments and against theory, which is preposterous because science functions when theory correctly predicts the results of experiments. But because universities are fueled by what's called grant overhead, which is the top 50% of uh, any grant that is awarded, um, there is a tendency inside the university to hire people who run expensive experiments that need big grants. They very easily dispense with theorists who need access to a library and pencils in the ideal case um, because they don't bring in big grants. However, what this does is it short circuits the scientific process and creates a, an iterated series of observations that are not scientific. And so ideas that should be quickly dispensed with by the partnership between theory and experiment may live on, they may even come to dominate fields. And that means that academics are, without their knowledge, peddling low quality material because they've, uh, they've compromised the goose that lays the golden eggs. What, if you were given free reign on academia, what else would you change about the current system and setup? You, well, first of all, the population of people that inhabit the academy has shown tremendous cowardice in light of the absurd notions that are fueling the modern protest movement. And so I would say we have a basic problem, which is that the culture of academia 
is timid and compliant in the face of power. It has tolerated really low-quality ideas like postmodernism, critical race theory, um, queer theory, and that in some sense it's hard to imagine the system being corrected without a turnover in uh, who is in the faculty, and that turnover would have to be accompanied by some sort of a plan to get more courageous, deeper thinkers into those chairs uh, in a way that they were safe enough to to stick around. So I must say I'm kind of um, not optimistic about the prospects of academia in the next generation or two because it is so broken. We have allowed the problem to get so so bad that it will be very difficult um, to rescue the institutions. There, I should also say, though, we should rescue them. For one thing, they have all these beautiful campuses that have everything you need to run a really good educational institution. So it would be the perfect place to do it if you decided to be serious about education and research. What advice would you give to young people maybe coming out of high school and um, maybe that in that uh, place where they're out, out of high school before university wondering what approach to take, wondering if university is the only approach to take. Because I think for a lot of people here in the UK, especially, there's almost a script written where if you don't go to university, then you're considered instantly less than everyone else who did. How do you maybe give advice um, to those who maybe are looking elsewhere or they don't know where else to turn? Um, This is a very tough question because I don't think there really is good advice. Young people are caught in a bind, which is that even if a university education is close to useless at this point, um, one may still need the credential in order to be taken seriously. So um, it's hard to know how to advise them. I think it's a, a huge waste, and frankly, it's become a racket, the uh, tremendous price of a college education is not mirrored by the value of what you'll learn, but it continues to flourish because uh, the mythology suggests that it is necessary for high-quality thought. Um, Were that not the case, I would advise people to make use of all of the resources that are now everywhere that allow them to teach themselves how to do things of very high value. Um, So I think you can uh, get quite a high-quality education if you have the correct motivational structure by sourcing the insight that you need um, outside of the official structure, but it won't give you a degree. What what would you say in terms of those people who are seeking that? But, I mean, we live in a world now where the Internet is full of so much information and there's so much bias in terms of um, maybe people trying to pull you towards ideology because it profits them. There's so much information to wade through sometimes that you don't know what the right information is. Yeah, I I would look at it a little differently. There are lots of things where this isn't a problem. You know, for example, if you want to learn to code, you can find the materials online and maybe you supplement them with a book or something. But nonetheless, it's very inexpensive to source what you need if you have the motivational structure that will cause you to actually engage that material. Once you've learned how things like uh, a computer program function, how to troubleshoot them, you will be a lot smarter than you were before. And that will allow you to figure out 
when you come to a topic that is more subjective, what uh, a true position sounds like versus an attractive fiction. So I have, and I, when I was teaching college, I was also a strong advocate for the idea that engaging subjects in which a person is not in a position to tell you whether you've succeeded or failed, but some other process that is not social tells you whether you've succeeded or failed, that that is the way to train your mind to work effectively. This next question, um, I'll set up with a quote uh, I found of yours, and that is, a movement opposes science when it doesn't want assertions tested, challenges arithmetic when its claims don't add up, ridicules merit when it wants to triumph by other means, seeks to censor when it fears discussion, and those who coddle such demands sow the seeds of our undoing. So my question to you would be, what could happen to a society that chooses to negate the scientific truth? A society that rejects science is effectively like a driver that puts on a blindfold. They might not crash right away, but it's coming soon. It is effectively an invitation to a dark age, which means an age in which progress comes to a halt and injustice reigns. And anybody who understands the relationship between high-quality insight into what is taking place and what is likely to happen based on uh, different policy proposals knows that we must at all cost prevent this shift in our mindset. How do we begin to heal a broken society? Is that even possible? And where does that journey begin? It's a good question. I see a tragedy unfolding where on the internet, you can watch people savage each other without cause And you can also watch people's humanity on display. And I very frequently will watch uh, something like a channel on Reddit that has uh, interesting videos of animal behavior. And people who don't know each other will bond over the shared recognition of what they're watching. And so I know that our ability to see each other is still there and that In some sense, we have to tune out the forces that want us divided, and that's almost all we have to do because human beings are capable of amazing feats of generosity and insight if they are in a position um, to see the humanity in others. So I am simultaneously disturbed by what I see and hopeful that something else is readily possible. Jumping back then to the the riots and protests we've seen over the last year, how or have we seen these protests become hijacked from a political point of view then? Unfortunately, we don't have enough attention to follow all of the threads that we need to track. So in the Pacific Northwest, there has been a strong anarchist thread that goes back to the WTO protests. And it has been consistent in Seattle, in Olympia, in Portland. And when the George Floyd protests started, it simply interfaced with this ongoing anarchist threat. In other words, the anarchists detected that because there was uh, great consternation over what had happened to George Floyd, 
and over the larger implications for racism and police brutality, the opportunity existed for a movement that has always been quite fringe to step into the mainstream by synonymizing itself with Black Lives Matter. The same thing can be said of the organization that goes by that name. Black Lives Matter is a very resonant idea, and for good reason. In the U.S., it is certainly true that black lives have been undervalued, that this is detectable, and that this is a problem that demands a solution. But the organization called Black Lives Matter stands for many other things, including uh, an attack on the nuclear family, which will, uh, if it succeeds, harm black people uh, as it will harm everyone else. So the ability of ideological movements to detect public sympathy that suddenly emerges and to capture it is something we have to be quite wary of. It has taken a moment of opportunity and it has turned it into a lethal hazard. Online, especially on Twitter, I keep seeing these words civil war thrown around and I think people are throwing them around in a way um, in this sort of meme culture almost or maybe lightheartedly, but how realistic do you think the concept of a, a civil war in America is? Unfortunately, I think it's actually fairly likely. And the reason that I say that is that people are engaged in a behavior that we know historically accompanies the march toward war and genocide. And that is to say, when people start discussing their, uh, their detractors, their antagonists, as if they were subhuman, not deserving of human respect, as if they were vermin or disease-riddled, that the next thing that happens is they go after each other. This is the way that, uh, that lineages prepare to destroy each other um, in a fashion that we have seen many times through history. So the fact of the rhetoric marching in that direction in the U.S. and in the West suggests that that process is actually underway. Now, the question is, can it be reversed? This is why some of us are focused on the idea of unity. It is why the idea that um, all cops are bastards, for example, is one that we have to oppose in the strongest possible terms. As soon as people find license to dismiss an entire group of humans on the basis that they are um, not worthy of being considered as individuals, we are simply in grave danger. And for the people listening to this that think um, that this can only be prevented on you know, a big picture stuff, for the individual, and they're thinking, what can I do? What difference can I make? How can I start to reverse this um, potential civil war? What would you encourage the, the individual to do? Well, there is a, I, I hesitate to call it a game, but there is an activity that I find very rewarding that I think increasingly is something other, others might adopt, which is very frequently there'll be some divide between you and another person that is supposed to be unbridgeable. I'm an evolutionary biologist. It is supposed to be the case that I cannot talk to 
a creationist or uh, a proponent of intelligent design because the gap is simply too big. But if one sets the objective of finding the humanity in someone across one of these large gaps, it's amazing how frequently one can cross that bridge and how rewarding it is once one does it. So I would say tune in to people on the other side of whatever divide you see and give them the benefit of the doubt and see if you can't figure out how things look through their eyes. Now, I would give one caution, which is there are bad people in the world. You don't want to give a sociopath license by extending um, an expectation that they want the same things that everyone else wants. You have to be cautious that when you encounter a bad actor, that you have some mechanism to get back across the bridge. But in general, most people are not motivated by ill intent. Most people are starting from a very different set of priors, and they arrive at a different conclusion. And uh, you can find their humanity if you go looking for it. One more question before we start the round, round third and I ask you our, our, our final uh, quickfire questions. It's regarding cancel culture. Where do you think the main motive lies uh, behind these people who almost find enjoyment in seeing the downfall of others? I think this is a game theoretic problem. The movement says things that are mind-numbingly foolish, but its strategy is bordering on brilliance. And the way those two things happen together is that the strategy evolved over time. And cancel culture, which is a term I don't love, but let's use it just because it's the one we have. Cancel culture is a game in which people are captured. That's the point. Cancellation is the threat that causes people who don't believe something to act as if they do and then to convince themselves that they do, to rationalize it into being. And so if you think about the logic of, uh, let's say, a zombie movie or, you know, in Game of Thrones, the army of the dead, the problem is that if you are killed by the army of the dead, you join it. And cancel culture has this aspect. In other words, if you look at the videos of people being confronted in cafes and being uh, told to say certain words and make a black power fist, everybody there has a choice. You can either do what they ask and then effectively you become um, an increase in the movement's momentum, or you can resist and be stigmatized publicly, which is something most people won't do. And so my point would be that those who are involved in cancel culture are people who have joined a movement that is offering a deal to people that most find hard to resist. You can join us and be doing what we do. You can add to the energy that we have to deploy, or you can oppose us and face it. And this movement is simply growing by virtue of the fact that the logic that people uh, are handed when they are faced with cancellation um, drives most of them to embrace it and then participate. So just a few questions left. These are questions we ask every guest that comes on the show. The first one may be difficult or easy, depending on how you see it, for you to answer. What are your favorite societal rules or societal norms that you just love breaking? 
<laughs> oh, well, I'm a born rule breaker, so it's hard for me to think of um, which ones I, I don't have that instinct towards. But let me put it this way. We in my family have experimented with um, adjusting our traditions around holidays. And one of the things we've done is we've taken Hanukkah and we have deployed eight different principles that we think are important. And we deploy one on each night of Hanukkah and we revisit it with our kids and we talk about why it's important. And so as they grow older, their nuance around these things grows. And one of our rules is don't game honorable systems. That is to say, when you face a system, if it's not honorable, you can take the gloves off. Um, if you face a system that is well-intended and workable, then it's not your right to, to destroy it. So this suggests very different behavior when you are faced with customer service, for example, where in order to be treated well by some corporation over which you have no influence, you may have to uh, adjust the truth about the failure of its product or whatever, whatever it may be. Whereas if you walk into a college classroom and there's a community that's been built and it's behaving honorably towards each other and people are being generous to each other, then disrupting that system is, uh, is something that is not your right. So I would say, generally speaking, I'm in favor of viewing the rules flexibly when uh, a dishonorable system is acting, and when something honorable is afoot, I'm a fan of it adhering to the rules. So our audience are very avid readers, and they would love to know, are there any books that you have read in your life that have had a big impact on you? There are a number. Um, I'm dyslexic, so I'm a slow reader, and I approach books with a certain skepticism, but there are some that have been transformative. One that I think is a slam dunk is Guns, Germs, and Steel, because Guns, Germs, and Steel allows one to understand the forces of history that actually shape who the winners are and who the losers are. And so this is an essential piece of insight if one is to avoid the what I view as a very incorrect idea that what has made some populations powerful and others weak are endogenous differences inside the people that make up those populations. The truth is, actually, what we have is historical accident that has empowered some populations and disempowered others, and that means several things. One, it means that the prospect of making a fairer world is reasonable, and two, that we should not view the distribution of opportunity as it stands as anything. It is not the result of those who are deserving having acquired more. While that force may exist, it is not the dominant force and certainly hasn't been the dominant force between populations. This next question could be people you've known your entire life, or it could be people you've never met. But for you, who have been some of your biggest mentors in life? Well, I had a very excellent PhD advisor, a guy named Dick Alexander, who was himself uh, very much a heterodox thinker and a, a rule breaker. He was also brilliantly insightful about 
um, evolutionary dynamics, especially with respect to humans. So whereas my field mostly embraced the idea that religion, for example, was some kind of a mind virus, Dick didn't see it that way, and neither do I. And so anyway, he was uh, a tremendous influence. My undergraduate advisor was a guy named Bob Trivers. Um, Bob is still alive, one of the greatest evolutionary biologists of the 20th century, certainly. And um, he also had a profound influence on me. Um, so I think those are two, uh, two very good ones. So my penultimate question to you is, if you imagine a scenario now in which every person on the planet is tuned into the same frequency and you're given the opportunity to broadcast one message or one lesson from, uh, if you distill down all the things you've learned in your life, what is one message that you think every person on the planet could benefit from that you'd love them to hear? I think if you chase down all of the various threads, things that we understand, insights that we have arrived at, all of the ones that are robust, and you take moral obligations seriously, you arrive at the understanding that the most precious thing we have is a human life that is liberated. That is to say, human life is very easily squandered if somebody is um, if somebody has to focus entirely on just simply getting by day to day, but that a person who has what it takes to liberate their mind, to focus on things that matter, typically ends up delivering value to humanity and having an experience that is um, beyond worthwhile. And if you agree with this, what it suggests is that we have an obligation to maximize the number of people who will have that liberated human experience. Now, you might think that that's an argument for a big population. It isn't. In order for the maximum number of people to have a truly liberated life, we have to hold the human population back from carrying capacity so that we experience abundance. And we have to turn that abundance into a steady state, right? So we are not constantly suffering from uh, the ebb and flow of growth. And if we do that, humans could exist indefinitely on this planet, generation after generation, experiencing that most marvelous gift, that liberated human existence that fosters creativity and insight and compassion. And that is what we should be doing. That is, as much as anything, the right objective for humanity. My last question to you, Brett. Um, so for myself, what makes my life worth living? Um, every night when I go to bed, I know that through putting out these podcasts, I've maybe touched the lives of, of, of the listeners and of some way I feel I've contributed to them. So my question to you is, for Brett Weinstein, what makes a life worth living? Yeah, it's uh, comparatively straightforward. If I look at all of the resources that will be spent on me, things that will never be recovered, that, that's an amount of debt. And I strive to be in surplus, that is to say, to return more to the world than the cost that is implied by my existence. 
And when I reach people, when I increase the amount that they can understand about what they see, about what life means, about why it's difficult in certain ways, um, if I improve their lives, it eats away at that debt, and um, life will have been worth living if uh, I end up... Um, if I end up in surplus, having created more well-being than I have burned up. Beautifully put, sir. For the listeners who may be interested in Unity, where can they find out more and connect with yourself? Uh, best place is to go to articlesofunity.org on the web. <clears throat> they can find me on Twitter, at Brett Weinstein. Brett has one T, and they can look me up me and my wife do a bi-weekly podcast, the Dark Horse podcast. It's on YouTube and on your favorite podcast apps. Brett, thank you so much for bringing the value today. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. I've enjoyed it too. Thanks for having me. And that wraps up my conversation with Brett Weinstein. I'll see you guys again on Monday. Until then, thank you for listening.